Hello and welcome to another episode of That 60s Recording Podcast, the podcast that has conversations inspired by the golden era of recording. I hope that you are all having a lovely summer. Um, I've had lots of new listeners uh, seemingly in the last month or two, maybe as the, uh, the world opens up again and people are going back to work. Um, that's why you're all listening to more podcasts. But if you're new to this, welcome, and I hope that you're enjoying digging through the archives. Um, had lots of uh, interesting guests on uh, over the past 18 months, and hopefully a lot more to come over the next few years, <laughs> or however long I'm going to be doing this for. Um, also had a lot of people getting in touch with me uh, in the last week or two with suggestions. Please do keep them coming. I'm very busy at the studio, so struggling with emails at the moment. Um, I'm not responding as fast as I'd like. But if you do have a guest suggestion, please do get in touch because I really appreciate it. And I'd love to know um, the specific areas that you guys want to hear about. Um, also, just a reminder uh, and, a, and a thank you to everybody that's ordered a, uh, a mug in the last couple of weeks. Um, I really appreciate the support, and if you'd like to support the podcast, you can do that. If you visit my website, all you need is drums.com. There is a shop there. Um, okay, so this week, uh, as I mentioned at the end of the last episode, is a conversation with a friend of mine, Andy Pickering, who lives in Sheffield, and he is a analog recording nut, um, and we uh, we talk a lot <laughs> about tape machines. He's got a beautiful four-track machine and recently came to my studio to record um, a basic track for a new single he's got coming out. And we recorded it to his four-track um, and then he's recently bought an eight-track and remixed it to eight-track. Uh, obviously, we uh, you know the wonders of digital have um, allowed that to happen, um, digital backups, that is. But yeah, he's a really interesting guy. So I would, um, I definitely recommend checking him out. I'll link him, uh, link all of the uh, his social media stuff um, at the end of the episode. And um, yeah, so we just generally co- uh, chat about his journey into music, and we're both similar ages. And it's it's, I thought it'd be interesting to do an episode on how you saw younger people, if you like. I'm not necessarily young anymore, but you know what I mean. So we grew up in a digital world and a rediscovering analog. Um, now, and I thought that would be an interesting perspective on on um, yeah just how we all deal with with that kind of thing and adjusting our mentalities. So that's what the, the majority of this episode is about, um, and I hope that you find it interesting. So here we go, Andy Pickering. Okay, so I am joined here by Andy Pickering, who is based in Sheffield, and I am going to pass it over to you to introduce yourself and uh, tell everybody a little bit about what uh, well what you do, and then we'll sort of discuss what um, what this sort of episode is going to entail. Hey, everybody! So, yeah, Andy Pickering here. I'm a singer songwriter, mostly into the 1960s, which is funnily enough why I've ended up on this podcast. (laughs) Um, And I run a humble analog home studio and usually put out about one EP a year and mostly focus on writing music and recording music in that classic vein. So I thought it would be interesting. We, We worked together recently on a 
uh, a track where Andy came to my studio and brought his four-track recorder and we worked on a track completely analogue. And uh, we've kind of been in touch for a little while before that. And I thought that this would be an interesting conversation to discuss um, not only sort of your history, but the uh, sort of processes and uh, sort of highs and lows, if you like, of, of learning as two relatively young <laughs> young men, they're relatively young men, <laughs> the pitfalls of learning how to set up a an, an analog studio, essentially. You know, we haven't grown up in in that era and we've kind of come into into music through a digital lens and suddenly, you know, taking in, an interest in analog stuff has been an interesting journey um, from my point of view and I'm sure it has been from yours. So I think that's the, uh, that's the sort of overarching goal of this. Um, Perhaps you could just tell us a bit about your musical background. So when when did you start playing piano? Was it? I guess you started quite young. Yeah, I started playing piano at the age of five and had like traditional piano lessons. Um, but it wasn't really until I was about 16 that my piano playing influenced what I was like listening to and vice versa. Um, before that point, like piano playing was something that I really loved to do. Um, but it was completely just, uh, you know, a separate thing, you know, yeah. I, I play like classical or ragtime or, or, you know, blues and stuff like that, just because that's what I'd learned, but I wouldn't like be listening to that. If it, you know, I mean, it yeah. What, um, in terms of, so what music was happening in your household? Was it, um, was it sort of six, what you're into now or was there, was it other stuff? That is of my parents era. But, um, yeah, I mean, I would say that my dad's record collection definitely influenced me. But so, but I grew up listening to, you know, um, Billy Joel and, and, of course, like the Beatles too. Um, but also, also, you know, this would have been in the 90s as well. So there was all, all sorts of stuff. You know, I had an older brother and sister who were into, you know, like, you know, my brother was into dance music and my sister was into like heavy metal, you know. Oh, so cool. Like I say, it wasn't until I was about 16 when I went to music college that then I, when after I'd left school, that the skills that I'd learned from the piano could then translate into music that I was getting into, which then became, like, from that point, like, just mad on the 60s, basically. But yeah. growing up, yeah, it was um, just, just a complete mixed bag. And I wouldn't say I was a huge... Obviously, I liked music and listened to music, but, I mean, when I was a kid, it wasn't like I was obsessed with really good music I, I listened to just like crap that was on in the charts and the, you know it, it, kids like you, you know I wasn't like a, a 10 year old with listening to the kinks you know <laughs> well you and me both I mean the reluctantly I, I don't think I've ever I, I, I don't even want to say it but I've started saying it now but my first ever album that I bought that I chose to buy myself was the Spice Girls Spice um and I, I sort of convince myself it's good because I think of, you know, if you think of the Please Please Me album, that's like proper bubblegum pop of that era. And I kind of think of the Spice Girls as being the same, but maybe I'm just kidding myself. I had some shockers uh, <laughs> sort of era. I mean, I had the Hanson album, so, you know. Oh, me too. <laughs> I learned how to play that drum beat, the boom, chat, ticka, ticka, dum, chat, along with that album. <laughs> and um, yeah, so it was... It was it was a while until I sort of you know got into the tastes that then shaped my musical future. <laughs> well, I think that that 
listening to that kind of stuff, I mean, whether you like the production on it or not, or the, you know, the sort of content of the songs, they're, they're just good quality pop songs, essentially. You know, they're very well written, tight pop music, and that will have influenced your songwriting. Absolutely, yeah. I mean, there's a big, you know, there's... If you go back to sort of the 90s, really, and you, you go to the mainstream stuff, which would have been like absolutely, you know, listened to every day, um, just on the radio, on the TV, you know, it's like, oh, this is like, compared to what I guess would be called mainstream now, it, it actually sort of does resemble proper music. <laughs> I agree with you. So then how did you get into songwriting? And so like as a 16-year-old pianist, at what point did songwriting come into it? Um, that came, actual songwriting came quite a bit later. If you class songs as words and music, that is. <laughs> I, I used to write music, um, but I was never... Never a vocalist, actually. I didn't start singing until I was about 21. Um, oh, wow. Realised that I never even tried or anything. So, but yeah, it was basically just learning to write tunes, I guess. And then I very early on joined bands. By this point, I'd met like a group of friends at college who now to me, that was like a really big turning point because all of a sudden had people my own age. So if you, you're at school and, and everyone's got so many varied interests, you're just thrown into big classes at college. All of a sudden you've got, you know, maybe 10 people who have chosen to do this music thing. And within those 10, maybe five uh, were like, Oh, we really love the Beatles and we really love Led Zeppelin and we really love the doors. And at that point, and 16 is still quite young. I'd never heard The Doors before. Um, and that gave me what keyboards could be in music and influenced my sound and my feel and my playing style. And I was lucky to be at that age where I could go out and buy the the, be the Doors, the best of The Doors, um, like music script and play it. So all of a sudden I could, you know, um, you know, play Light My Fire and Break On Through and Rides On The Storm and all that. And basically, you know, when we had this thing called the Swift Flash in where I grew up, which is like a little little pamphlet for a local pamphlet, basically. And I saw a Hammond organ in there, bought that, like 50 quid. I got this 1960s Hammond organ. Wish I still had it. But, uh, so, you know, this is, we're talking a long time ago. This is like early 2000s. Yeah. Uh, and... Yeah, and that was it then from there. Just uh, mad on the 60s, haven't looked back. Amazing. I love the idea that you bought a Hammond organ. You just bought it. It must have been like the best feeling ever. I, I mean, I can remember trips to, it was Virgin Megastores where I lived. And, uh, you know, trips to Virgin Megastores and sort of rooting around in the, um, in the singles bin of, uh, you know, like a, you know, sort of vinyl singles, actual records. And people didn't want them. They're like 99p. You, you've seen them. I've got a few on the wall at the studio. And uh, it must have been pretty exciting for you when you discovered that there was uh, sort of interesting music that you could play as a piano player. It wasn't just your grade systems and that kind of stuff. Because before that, like sort of, I did GCSE music, but before that, coming out of school, um, I didn't realise what a keyboard player's role 
in a band was or too much. A lot of the stuff I was listening to was just guitar music, you know, classic 90s indie. Everyone was into Oasis and stuff like that. Um, it, you know, it was like I couldn't play guitar at all then. So, and I just didn't re- realize how I fit into a band. Then all of a sudden, you know, you hear the doors or, or a track like Green Onions or something like that. And that was the sound. That was like, that was just it for me. And, um, and I still don't really own a synthesizer, you know, because very like if I'm putting keyboards on a song, it's either organ or piano. Gone <laughs> <laughs> past 1969 yet. <laughs> what was your first studio experience? That would have been in my first band. So I was in a band called The Undergrade, which was when I was 18. So this was, yeah, college friends, all like-minded, ridiculously Doors sounding. The lead singer was actually the writer, but I would write a lot of the music. So we were my first collaboration. And and that was um, a great time because, yeah, we, we were writing original songs and it was about the same time that The Choral came out, about 2002. Yeah. And they were doing a very similar thing to us, like completely incidental. And we got, you know, instantly into that whole like London A&R scene. And we're like so young now thinking about it, like going down to London and being scouted. And, uh, you know, we had a manager and, um, you know, unfortunately, it, it, we never really went too far, um, but we did loads of great gigs and stuff. And that was, yeah. Every band that I've been in actually has been ridiculously 60s. And that was, we were very doorsy. So I, at this point, I'd got like a portable Hammond organ. And that was just my job. I didn't sing, I didn't play guitar. I just co wrote and just played keyboards, basically. Cool. And do you remember, um, was your, were you recording stuff at home or did you have, did you visit, was it, I mean, does this Sheffield based? Yeah, first recording experience. So in that band, yes, uh, we, uh, we won a battle of the bands in Leicester and with the the winnings was a th- three days in a recording studio. Oh, amazing. Studio. Now looking back to that, that was actually quite an old school recording studio in terms of it was, this would have been what, 2002? So it was, I wouldn't say it was necessarily pre-digital, but the recording studio, it wasn't tape, but I think it was ADAT, but it was still like the old fashioned, big old mixing desk and you record onto this mach- little machine and... Um, and yeah, absolutely, absolutely loved it. Absolutely, like for me, yeah, being in a recording stu- studio for the first time, that was like just something somewhere I knew I wanted to be. They felt cool, yeah. didn't they? It was a, you know, the, there's the um, the the old sort of spaceship um, analogy, and it did. I can think of the times that I was in studios and not understanding what they were, and you know, you've got this it was all decked out really nicely and it felt like a cool space space to be and everybody who was there was cool and then hearing yourself back was it was cool if if a little unpleasant at times but yeah it's, it's sort of it definitely they have a cool aura about them don't they yeah yeah for sure so yeah and from that point then that band then led into another band and then we you know further down the line I'd ended up being in studios quite a lot um, but this was still quite a long time before I'd done anything myself. 
you this is a very separate point but you've had some very cool band names <laughs> I, I was looking through um just the bio on your website and pretty much every band you've been in has had an absolutely brilliant name <laughs> yeah well the undergrade was the first one which which uh it was literally everyone was given like a university undergraduate prospectus sort of thing and i just was like oh that's a good band name and it was kind of uh, a lot of people missed the point, but we were the only people on our course, our band, that didn't go to university. Um, so it was like sort of trying to sort of be like, yeah, well, we're the undergrade, you know. <laughs> but, uh, yeah, then the mid-beats and then, yeah, later the Dre tones. All of them are brilliant names. I'm jealous. <laughs> I think of some of the crap band names that I've had in the past, and they're all incredible. Um so at what point did you start to take an interest in, or, or do you remember the, a time where you kind of considered that that studio was something that you were sort of taking a bit of a keener interest in? Absolutely. So that was also in the undergrade. That was when the I first got a, well, it wasn't mine, but I sort of acquired it from our bass player, uh, a four track basically. So Ooh. all the way back then I was recording the band um, which may or may not have hurt our career because I was putting out ridiculously lo-fi recordings and I didn't really know what I was doing. And I was like, yeah, this is going to be our album. And we would literally uh, re record in our drummer's dining room and we would have four-track cassette and we'd just have... So there's four people in the band um, and we'd have <laughs> three tracks and save one for vocals. So... Drums would have one track and then we'd like have a couple of sort of room mics picking up. I mean, it was ridiculous. We'd just like share a bass and guitar. Um, but it was just capturing a live thing. And that was pretty much where it started for me in terms of you, you get the tape home and then you, you play it through the speakers and it's like, oh, that sounds great. You know, like, <laughs> um, even, even on that sort of primitive way of doing it. Were you... Um... Whoa! What? I, I I love the fact that these weren't even demos. This was you sort of going. This is what we're going to put out. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I mean, it did. I'd probably got a bit of experience before we did the actual record like that, um, which was just called the mini album, um, which never it was not really a very creative title, but um, basically, I mean, it started from I had this little Roberts radio which had a built-in condenser mic. And actually, for a little radio, tape radio, sounded quite good. And we used to record the music on that and then record that onto track one and then overdub vocals and maybe a tambourine or something on the others. And But it, it, you know, it escalated to the point of where it was like, oh, now, why are we using this Robert's radio? What's this point in, in capturing the music with that? Let's have, like, a microphone each. And... You know, slowly but surely, I started getting the hang of it. And then I guess, like my dad's office, I was still living with, you know, my parents at the time, um, became a tiny little studio. I guess you could call it that. It was a four track, a uh, little hi fi speakers, a little amp. And, you know, I had a microphone. And, and then I was, so we'd do the music, and then the singer would come around and he'd do his vocals. And uh, and then I would maybe do some percussion or something, and 
and and also at this point I'd got a really sort of rubbish computer program I think it was called Magix <laughs> um, like a Pro Tools Logic sort of thing and I would then mix into that maybe a few additional overdubs and that was it for me yeah like I would had produced a record it's so uh, cool whether it's uh, it's got charm and I like the fact that it's so live and so unedited and so raw and ridiculously ridiculously naive making that in terms of I had no idea how to do it but I did it well you learn by doing don't you though that's it did you have a what what was your thoughts sort of, sort of thought processes in terms of mic placements and things were you just winging it or did you have an idea of what you were doing not really no I mean, part of our college course was like music technology and, uh, well, like studio stuff, but I was, um, I wasn't probably using the best advice on how to mic a drum kit up when I'm hanging one mic off like a, a lampshade or, or <laughs> like, well, a light fitting above, above the drum head, like, like a mini chandelier and we'd just like hang the mic off there or, or hang a mic off, you know, a curtain rail that kind of thing you know it was very just makeshift and it, if it makes a sound and it sort of sounds like what you're trying to capture that that's that's good enough to take home what do you remember what the machine was that you're using it was a yamaha okay and uh is do you still have that or is that gone it wasn't even mine it was it was our bass players one but i ended up having it at like my house for a, a year or so uh, and at that point i'd sort of started recording random other things on it as well um a bit, a, you know i was doing a bit of hip-hop on it for instance and stuff like that. <laughs> that time, before i'd got into all the 60s stuff like i was massively into my hip-hop so uh, i still had that kind of it was around the time when the streets came out it was yeah material. so i was like oh yeah i want to make some beats you know um but anyway that's going off topic on this but uh yeah <laughs> Basically, yeah, that was my recording thing. And then then the bass player, we started another band called The Midbeats, which... Great name. <laughs> classic, like, we fell out with a singer, so we formed our own band. And there's actually a video on, on YouTube of that called The Midbeats, uh, from the beginning, I think it is. And we'd filmed this whole... We went to a cottage about 2005. So I think when I started, it was 2002. It's like when I actually started recording. So three years on, and he'd got an eight track, um, like port studio, Tascam one, still cassette. And yeah, so by that point, I'd done a few records, little things here and there for the band. And it's quite funny. He was actually the avid sort of recording person with all the equipment. And I sort of, you know, ended up having all of his stuff and doing it all from my house. But uh <laughs> it's basically we went to a cottage and filmed it in the middle of uh shropshire border of wales and basically took yet yeah, all our equipment in this eight track rented this cottage and then did a week recording there so that was like the next step up for getting into you know all analog production but i gotta say at that point in time it wasn't like we were trying to be ironic or doing anything kind of oh, this is a bit, you know, old school. It was kind of four tracks and things and cassette was still not completely obsolete at that point in time. And it was still like 
particularly on eBay, like an affordable way to get something pretty decent to record with. And they're not all completely broken down by that point. So, <laughs> you know, um, so we got, we got a lot of mileage out of that eight track and that was, yeah, recorded an EP, um, you know, all analog again. Did that feel, uh, did eight track feel like a luxury compared to the four track? Yeah, yeah, for sure. Uh, really good machine, actually, that, that Tascam um, eight track. Um, but yeah, it, graduating to eight tracks definitely felt like a, a luxury. Uh, and at that point, we did that record. There was no, we did, had no digital end whatsoever. I one of the, I just really admire the. I, I don't know. Maybe I'm. I'm. Uh, maybe this is wrong, but it's almost this sort of naive uh, innocence of going like, we're just going to do it ourselves. Like you almost didn't know anything different. And I, yeah. you know, when I was in bands at the same time, that was ne- that that option never even occurred to us. You know, everything was you know, rehearsed in rehearsal rooms. And I can remember recording straight to a CD from a rehearsal room. That's how we demoed songs. And then we had to pay a studio day. Um, And, you know, it was never doing it ourselves didn't even occur to us. Yeah, I just loved messing around with it, all that sort of stuff, you know. That was kind of like the, the, and the control. we'd, We'd done studio stuff. Um, so up to this point, I'd recorded a couple of records myself in both bands. Um, and at that point, we'd probably been done a few studio things as well. And, you know, the studio stuff never had as much charm and the performances were never quite as good, basically because you're forced to just do it, um, you know, in a day. Of course. Mixed and you've got the CD in your hand in a day. So, and we had no idea really how to be prepared for that. You know, you it's a lot, of, yeah, so pressure, isn't it? Bad and that, that that's mixed badly, and it's nothing to do with the person in the studio. Um, they're just doing the best in the time that you've got. But doing it yourself, you've got the freedom to explore the possibilities of what you can do, and that's something you can't do in a studio unless you're like you know a famous band and you've got loads of studio time and so basically yeah having your own facility was like i'd rather do something that probably sounds a little bit more lo-fi but it's got way more vibe to it than a kind of you know that was the ethos moving forward anyway <laughs> and how so i've, I've seen uh, i've not been but i've seen sort of where your studio is currently at how did it get from your bass player owning an eight track to where you're currently at so that well that's um fast forwarding now quite a few years after that so say if that was 2005 era for the next sort of three or four years we recorded on that eight track and the the band progressed and we we sort of had a home studio we like lived together and stuff you know classic like sharing a house with your mates in your 20s that kind of thing and we had like a room dedicated to like the music room and you know but then so that band to go back to another question about writing songs the midbeats that was where i picked up a guitar for the first time i didn't even learn guitar until i was 21 or singing and that's where my songwriting started so that was a huge um if you if you trace back what i've been doing like the midbeats was like the first time i sung and wrote songs so that was you know 
once that had finished, that was when I got my calling to be the rock and roll star and joined a band called the Draytones, which was a band that I met on like tour and they were looking for a keyboard player, but they were signed and kind of, um, you know, I, I went, you know, I went to Argentina and like played all over Europe and, and all of a sudden I was playing in a band that had fans and actually had albums in HMV and, um, you know, it was like me actually experiencing, um, I say making it, I mean, you know, I never really made any money off it or anything like that, but I got to live the life for a couple of years and it was a fantastic band, exactly suited to the type of music that I do and had been doing up to that point. So talking about the studio thing, so basically by the time I joined the Draytones, I didn't have a home studio. Um, I was It was someone else's gig, really, that I was helping. Um, so the lead singer, um, Gabriel, he was massively into the 60s. If anyone hears the Draytones, they'll go, oh, yeah, like huge, you know, 60s garage or like Beatles, Kinks, you know, that sort of thing. Um, and I was helping doing arranging and writing little bits in there and there, but it was, I was joining someone else's band. So all of a sudden I was for the first time without my own thing. And that's where the solo thing started. And that's where the start of the home studio was basically. And that started with me going, well, I've, you know, been writing songs for a few years now. I've got a few songs that I'd done with the midbeats. I'd never recorded anything on my own before. So this is 2010, 11 now. So it's like 10 years ago. Never recorded anything myself. Um, but I didn't really have any equipment to record anything myself. Like I say, the eight track wasn't mine. The four track, you know, before that wasn't mine. And, uh, so I was like, I want to do some lo-fi demos at home. And I bought a karaoke machine, <laughs> went like super, super lo-fi and bought this cassette karaoke machine that had like two decks in it. So you could do the classic. Oh no, sorry. My makeshift jam jar mic stand has fallen down. Hold on. Oh my goodness. Right. I'm back in the game. <laughs> Okay, so this karaoke machine, uh, yeah, had two decks. The classic, like you record on one tape, then you mix, um, you could record that onto the other deck whilst overdubbing and keep going back to forward. And it had like a little built-in spring reverb, microphone input, guitar input. That lasted not very long until I was like, this is kind of cool, but maybe I should get a four track again. So that's where it, the Marantz came. I was on eBay. I saw a Marantz in Leicester. Never heard of a Marantz PMD 740, which is what I'm now known for. You know, honestly, I get contacted by people all over the world um, all the time about that machine because basically uh, after I'd been using it for a while, I put a post on Gear Sluts, which is now called Gear Page, I think. or Gear Space. Yes, space, sorry, yes. Um, and I guess I was just first in the race with that machine and no one had ever really talked about it. And I put this post up saying, oh, this is what I've recorded with it. Um, and it just if you type in that machine now, my thread is like at the top of Google. 
<laughs> so therefore I get contacted a lot. And yeah, so basically, yeah, I got the Marantz and it sounded fantastic. It was like a really hi-fi machine and it was nice to, hadn't used a four track for years. And then, yeah, so, I mean, all I had at that point was a four track. I had a friend who was at university in Leicester doing a like recording music technology course degree. And um, I used to borrow mics from the university through him. And bring them home. So sometimes I'd have like a nice Neumann mic, and I'd be, you know, doing stuff there. And yeah, so that's where the home studio started. And I didn't even have a microphone of my own, but I had, <laughs> makes me sound like a cheapskate. I don't have like my own equipment. It was never really a, a case of that. It was. <laughs> oh no! It just seems like the quit the the gear's been around you, and you've not needed yeah. until this point. You're not needed to to buy anything like to say before moving forward that throughout throughout these bands and through i you know have been immersed in 60s music like obsessed with the beatles being the main one of course but like that's clearly influenced my writing and the way that i think about sound and the way i capture sounds and the way that I sort of research, you know, I'd be much more interested in hearing how a recording was set up in, in the 60s or even the 50s as well. Um, you know, all that Norman Petty studio stuff, I'm like obsessed with that. And that's always fed in, you know, I'm still recording on a humble four track in a bedroom, but you're still using that sort of um, you know mentality to sort of try and make your own records and learn. And that's, yeah, that's where it all started basically. So what is it, I mean, I, I probably know the answer to this question already, but what is it about the, that era that makes it so intriguing to you? I don't know. For some reason, that, even though it's not of my generation at all, the 60s stuff just sounded like um, magic to me. And, and that whole, like... Just the sound and the the songwriting as well. Uh, above and you know beyond everything, songwriting is the most important thing. That's one thing that sometimes you could talk about, you know, equipment and how do you get that sound and and people asking and it's like, you know, often is overlooked the type of music that you're recording. And I could have this analog setup like I've got now, but I could be recording, you know, like eighties pop and it wouldn't have that sound, you know. But it's still using the same equipment. <laughs> it's it's almost a, co a confluence of, of both of them that you know as i've picked up um so by the time this this episode goes goes out people will have heard i i was chatting with ron ryan which is a and and you know hopefully we'll we'll do this project together that um people will know about soon um and in digging into ron's history i ended up buying a uh a compilation of five um five cds um that was sort of european um 60s garage pop um and some of the songwriting on it is it's very good but it's very simple and almost bluesy and you know i can see that there is you know there's obviously fantastic songwriting happening and there's also i don't know quite how to explain it like energetic songwriting that's really vibey and the songs themselves aren't there's not a lot of content there, but there's something about it that's just exciting. And 
that doesn't seem to exist in any other era to me that, that it's something there's something so young and fresh and and cool about it all yeah it's um you know if you've ever you know done sessions as a band in you know studios like we were talking about earlier and you think of the kind of records in the same time frame that they were coming out with obviously there's people that you've never heard of that probably didn't come out with something so great but i mean it's just it's just crazy the obviously there was a lot of jobs in those days in terms of like you know you'd have the, the songwriter and the and the, the performers and the, the engineers and then the producer and when all those things really cooked it was like you know um it, it's just magic isn't it really it's just yeah. quite unbelievable i I don't know whether you know. I, I don't know whether you agree with this or not. But one of the things that appeals to me so much about it is the sounds that you're hearing. You know that those sounds were made sort of naturally in somehow. Whether you know whether they've been manipulated it by tape or whatever. There's something scientific about it. Whereas when you hear sounds that are coming out now. The, the sounds have been made using a plugin or some sort of wizardry and they don't seem as accessible to me. And that's one, I love the idea that, that with four tracks and some instruments, you can make those cool sounds. Well, that's, yeah, that's my, my whole ethos was the frustration with um, music in general, in terms of in our time period and sort of what I was into. That's where my slogan a lost world of honest analog sound paired with classic pop. I feel like that defines what I do. And honest is like the big thing for me in terms of I'm recording something that actually makes a sound with a microphone, you know, onto tape, or even if you're doing it digitally, but you can still use the same ethos, you know, that's, that's the big one for me. And yeah, so all those sixties records that translates to me something that really you know makes me feel something makes jump out and and it makes me want to do it and learn how to do it that's kind of i agree with you i'm interested something that we um (laughs) i i you've you've become my sort of a analog advice guru (laughs) something that we we whatsapp a lot about is the pitfalls of buying tape machines so you people might have seen on my um, my instagram that i've recently bought a four track inspired by you (laughs) and your morants and um, in terms of when you bought that Marantz, were you aware of, of, well, first of all, let's, let's discuss what are the pitfalls of buying equipment, say now. I mean, I know 10 years ago, they were, it's um, you know, closer to, the, to sort of the 80s when these machines were starting to, be, to become popular. Yeah. Uh, but what, what were the pitfalls that uh, if anyone listening is looking into tape machines or has one that isn't working, what, what's your, um, what, would, what should you be looking out for, essentially? Um, if you're buying a machine, it's got to be serviced or because they're old. They're, they're 30 plus years old, some of them now. Um, so if you're just buying something that someone advertises as working well, <laughs> no like history of like I've had the belts changed and I've had this recapped or that recapped, you know, it's um, going to fail probably. The, the They're far exceeding their life expectancy it's just like look at it like you know vintage cars or anything you wouldn't expect to uncover a, a you know 
a car that's been in a garage for you know 30 years or something and, and expect it to just drive out you know it's they, they just take work so really important to find a tech you know and they're quite few and far between someone best thing to do is if you could do that sort of stuff yourself i can't i'm rubbish i can change a belt and obviously clean my head and demag and but that's you know pretty much it i'm not going to be opening the machines up and like recapping things and i'm not very so i'm not an electrical engineer or anything like that but that is the main thing is if it works because the analog gear particularly tape machines um don't work quite a lot of the time so <laughs> That's, you know, something that is so important to look for is someone that's selling it, you know, obviously you can take a chance and things can work great. But nowadays, if someone's selling, it's going to have to have some history of having new belts at least because, you know, the belts turn to goo and stuff. And if you turn it on and try and run it and the belt's gooey, it's going to just like cause an absolute nightmare in your transport. It does seem from our conversations that these, I mean, I, I looked for um, techs just because I, you know, because of my Revox, if it ever needed servicing or, um, you know, I was looking at what what four track to buy. And again, I was looking at um, working order, but no history of servicing and thinking if I, you know, if I spend 250 quid on on something and take a chance, the chances are I'm going to have to find the tech. And we were discussing yeah. this and there doesn't, the, the sort of the people I know, you included, who are interested in all of this, don't have techs nearby. Everyone's posting stuff off to the the far reaches of the country. Well, luckily, with yeah, luckily with Port Studios, you can post them, um, and sometimes that can actually be cheaper than your petrol to drive it somewhere and your time as also. When you're talking about reel to reels, you know that's a whole other thing because they're super big and heavy. But um, but yeah, it's just you know the the ethos is is yeah. If you're buying one, you want to know a bit about the machine, a little bit about its history. It's like just like buying a car. Honestly, when I started driving, that like it was like the advice was, um, you, you know, the most important thing is to have a good mechanic. You know. <laughs> Sort of the same thing. Like you don't have to instantly know a tech to buy one, but whoever you're buying the machine off, you're gonna have to have a little bit of reassurance about the fact that it's gonna have been serviced at some point recently. Had things, had the belts changed at least. You know, condition of heads on four tracks compared to reel to reel seem um, to be fine. Like the heads on four tracks, I've never really seen worn heads, to be honest. Um, Definitely not in the way that in reel-to-reels, you know, uh, the heads can really wear and you need to get them relapped and stuff. I've never heard of, like, heads being relapped for a four-track or anything like that. So, yeah, it's just, you know, yeah, go do your research a little bit on the machine and and, and don't expect to buy something that, as everyone advertises it as, seems to be working well or, like, <laughs> hours on, but, you know, and it's like, hours on and seems to be working well and the person selling it's just got no idea whatsoever and you... you you get it and then it's like awful wow and flutter or something like that and you know then you're gonna have to either learn how to do the work yourself or um find someone to do it or or find the parts and you know there's there's a number of routes you can do you can change belts yourself there's a lot of information out there now particularly on youtube and stuff of people opening these machines up particularly the more 
popular Tascam models. And but yeah, only anything like this, it's a mechanical machine. It, it is likely to break. Um, so uh, we live in an age where if you are recording on them and it's anything that you want uh, as you're going along, back it up digitally as well. Yeah. It does seem, I mean, I can literally turn the power in my studio on and off and that will solve a problem sometimes. It, it's it's oh, so ridiculous. Some gremlins in it, I tell you. I can't. I still can't figure out what on earth happened when i brought the four track there to that channel and um that would just was the vu was just stuck on well classic example you know you you tested it before you yeah, um, yeah. you came to mine and it just just wasn't for whatever reason that day just wasn't happening <laughs> yeah, that channel just wasn't happening and it was such a bizarre thing because i've been using it for 10 years you know um and, and had it serviced but also the microphone thing as well that microphone that i brought the uh, electro voice um honestly there is nothing wrong with that microphone <laughs> ever since and it's loud and clear and works perfectly in your studio nothing absolutely it's, nothing. it's the the I, I mean there's no explanation is <laughs> but that's part of the fun is that you know we had to you just have to get on and there's no um you know there's there's nothing you can do you know we that's what we were doing that day we were like right fine we're doing it with three tracks now the drums the drums are mono <laughs> and um you know luckily it, it worked it worked perfectly in the end so so there we go part one of my conversation with andy pickering you can find out more about andy on his website which is andypickering.co.uk he's also on instagram uh, which is at andy pickering music um i'll probably put a post about it on my instagram too if you want to check that out um so that's it for this week. That just leaves me to say a big thank you to my good friend Joe Kane and David Henshaw for the artwork and the music. Also now a big thanks to Rory Hancock for supplying the means to get this up on the internet. So thank you, Rory. Um, I hope you all have a fabulous week and I will see you next week with part two. Goodbye.